Well, good morning, Three Lakes. How are you this morning? Good morning. How many in here had a chance to enjoy the weather yesterday or this week? You got outside, did something fun? So yesterday I was up in the UP with Ann Eppler, and she, she said, we're in extra innings. And I thought, that's appropriate. We are in extra innings right now. We're enjoying every little second of this beautiful weather that we get. So we're going to stand up and worship this morning and um, hope you join us. So.
Well, good morning. Great to be gathered here with you this morning and just yeah, gather together as God's people in this place. Uh, for those of you who may not know me, my name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. So this morning we're going to, at the end of the service, we're going to celebrate communion together. So if on your way in, you didn't grab an individually wrapped little cup and wafer cracker, there's some uh, by the entrance on your way in. I'm going to pray here in a minute, so if you want to sneak out while I do that to grab that, you're welcome to do that. Um, also, as part of our communion Sunday, we take a special kind of benevolence offering. Um, so on your way out, there'll be someone with a, with a holding a basket or a plate for benevolence offering. Um, you can give money to there. Otherwise, our regular offering will be in a plate uh, on a table to your left on your way out. If you're here visiting with us, please understand we don't want you to give. We're not asking you to give. We want this service to be a gift to you. But we're, we're thankful for those of you who have given um, regularly and faithfully um, over these past months. So thank you for that. Um, just a couple other announcements. Next Sunday, after, after the service and after Sunday school and cross training, we'll have a congregational meeting. So if you join us for that, that would be great. Um, yeah, otherwise, let's enter a time of prayer. Father, we, we thank you for the time to gather, to be your people gathered in this place. I pray that you would calm our hearts this morning, that you would remove worry, remove distraction, remove other thoughts, and just let us come and gather and worship you and hear your word be reminded that you are a good and gracious God, that you love us, you care for us, that you have a good plan for each of us. Again, no matter what's going on in the world around us, that you are in control, that you ultimately will win, you'll be seen as glorious by all of creation. So I pray for those and our church family who are sick, who are hurting, that you would give them peace and comfort. And that we just pray for our, our country and the world and the days and weeks and months and years ahead that you would work, bring about your will, that you would work to achieve your purposes even in times when it hard for us to see what's going on. That you be glorified this morning, that we'd be amazed by what a great God you are, what a great Savior Jesus is. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. Um, so we're going to watch a video here in a little bit, but I wanted to kind of explain it first. I was just throwing a random video at you. So sometimes when I'm at work, I'm listening to music a lot and playing YouTube and whatever, and as I hear songs, I'll write a sticky note to myself and slap it on my desk, and that's kind of what this morning is, is a bunch of sticky notes combined. So these are songs that I've, like over the last few weeks, really been listening to and thinking about, and um, so I stumbled on this series of YouTube videos that are put out by Way Nation, and during the Safer at Home period, when we were all kind of locked down, Artists didn't have a lot of concerts to perform, right? Like everything was canceled. And these were artists that they came together and they did these these YouTube videos. And they were just kind of talking about the music they played. And they were fun and lighthearted. But I found this piece by We the Kingdom. We've sung some of their songs. And the question, they would they would give them a mug with questions in it. And they'd have to pull out a question and answer it. So the piece that I pulled out for you guys to listen to this morning, the question was asked, what is a song that you have produced or written that people don't know that you've done, basically. So he's going to answer it, and then the reason it resonated with me so much is that um, as musicians up here, sometimes as we're singing songs, we have this argument with each other a little bit about, like, worship songs sometimes, how simple they can be. And as a musician, simplicity is almost bad sometimes. Like, you like the complexity of chords, and you like the the movement of the, the lyrics and everything. And some worship songs are what Doug likes to refer to as 7-Elevens, where they have like this repetitive seven words repeated 11 times, right? You're kind of like singing the same words over and over. But yet, as the like devil's advocate of that, 
I find those songs sometimes to be so reflective, like they're meditative. You're saying the same thing over and over in a prayerful way. And in this clip we're going to watch, um, the artist answers that in a really unique way, and I wanted you to hear that before we sing the song. Okay, this next prompt is uh, a song that people don't know that you wrote or produced. Last prompt. The song for me that comes to mind is the song, How Great Is Our God?, Um, this song holds such a special meaning in my heart because of where I was in life when I met Chris Tomlin. And, you know, I moved to Nashville. This is almost 20 years ago. Long story short, uh, I met Chris. I was, I was taken by his conviction. Um, and I was really torn because I, I didn't want to be known or, for working on worship music in my own pride, I think. But I also sensed that God was opening this door Anyway, he sends me this um, cassette tape of all his song ideas that he was wanting to make um, for a record. And I heard the beginnings of How Great Is Our God. And this is a true story, y'all. I remember hearing it, and I started laughing out loud. And I was like, kind of in a vain, haughty way, making fun of it. I thought, that's everything I don't like about worship music. It's just four chords over and over again, saying the same thing over and over again. And it's... Sure, as I'm sitting here, I've never heard the audible voice of God. But in that moment, what I sensed as powerfully as I've ever sensed anything was the Lord speaking to me and saying, how dare you curse what I have kissed? And I mean, I just, I hit my knees. And and since that moment, God has been changing my heart toward what it really means to give him honor through music. And... You know, Chris is a dear brother now. Talked to him on the way over here. I was talking to him in the parking lot, and we're getting ready to work on some stuff, and he's just become a really dear friend. And so much of what I'm grateful for is his commitment to honoring the name of the Lord and to giving people voice to sing the praises of God. I mean, it has been so transformative in my life. I know that it has radically affected our family uh, just to to even be around that. So um, when I look back on this song, it really marks the time where the Lord said, you know what, I'm about to do something beyond your wildest dreams and your heart and your life and your family um, for my glory and my glory alone. Why don't you stand up? We're going to sing a few songs this morning. And I believe, you know, like standing up in our posture is part of worship. The splendor of the King Hey. 
the second song here we're going to go to, see if I can find the right setting. Um, this is an old hymn. I love hymns. I grew up on them, and you know, every time we sing them, I, I hear the parts. You know, it just they're they're beautiful. No matter what we do with them, this is a little. We're going to sing it a little bit differently this morning. A little bit more. Um, just a little slower, a little bit more like a worship song. And last, yesterday when I was up in the UP, this song was really floating through my head. This is a blessed assurance. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. And in the chorus it says, this is my story, this is my song. And I was kind of, um, <laughs> I'm going to cry singing this because it was, uh, this has been a hard, hard year for a lot of us, and I know that. And it's been a hard week. And just this breath of, um, beautiful sunshine and air that we've had. It was like just salve for my soul. And as I was walking on the beach, like these lyrics were going through my head and this is my story. Each of us has a different story this year. We've all had different hard things happen. We're all like continuing through hard things, but this is my song. I'm praising my Jesus all the day long. I think what more beautiful thing can we sing than a worship song like that? You know, and I think, like, as you're singing that this morning, um, you know, keep those words in your heart, in your in your mind.
Father, we thank you that we had a chance to come and worship you and for the reminders and those songs we sang this morning that you are great, that we have reason to love you. You're our blessed assurance. And we pray that we would remind ourselves of those truths, that we would live in light of those truths day and in the days and weeks ahead. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm I'm not much of a golfer. Like I like it in theory, but I only get out like a few times a year. Like and as I stand like on the first tee, ready to hit my first shot. Like, I'm always excited and think, oh, yeah, I, I like golf. I wonder why I don't do this more often. But then I, like, step up to my first tee shot, and I'm like, without fail. Like, it sails off way to the right, way to the left, goes, like, four feet in front of me, something. And, like, in that moment, I remember why I don't golf more often. Like, I am not a good golfer. And golf is an incredibly frustrating sport to not be good at. But there's always like a couple of moments in each round of golf right, where I, I hit the ball the way I actually meant to hit it. Right? The ball goes about where I want it to go. Like it's such a good feeling that it's like just enough to get me to come back and play another time. And I imagine the epitome of that feeling would be hitting a hole-in-one. Now, I say I imagine because I've never become particularly close to actually hitting a hole-in-one. There was one time I hit a shot, and I walked up, and like, my ball was like two feet from where the hole used to be. Like, that's the closest I've ever come to hitting a hole-in-one. But if I ever did hit a hole-in-one, like, it would almost certainly be a once-in-a-lifetime event. Even for highly skilled golfers, hitting a hole-in-one is a fairly rare event. In fact, like the number one player in the world, a guy named Bryson DeChambeau, he insists he's never hit a hole-in-one in his life. Like, I don't know how many thousands and thousands of practice rounds he played, but he's never hit a hole-in-one. One statistician calculated the odds of a good amateur golfer, pretty highly skilled, not professional, but highly skilled amateur golfer, hitting a hole-in-one at 5,000 to 1. Which means that for most, just about any golfer, Hitting a hole-in-one is a once-in-a-lifetime event. But every once in a while, circumstances conspire to turn a once-in-a-lifetime event into like a once-in-human-history kind of event. And that's what happened to a guy named Patrick Willis who was playing in a local golf tournament in 2015. He was 59 at the time, and he hit a hole-in-one on the seventh hole of the tournament. Then he had another hole-in-one on the 10th hole of that tournament, and another hole-in-one on the 14th hole of the same round. So three holes-in-one in the same round of golf. And so if it's true, if that statistician is right that the odds of hitting a hole-in-one are 5,000 to 1, that means the odds of getting three holes-in-one in the same round of golf are more than one in a trillion. But Willis did it. So not surprisingly, Willis holds the record for most holes in one in a round. And it seems unlikely that that record will ever be matched, much less broken. So Willis, or he went from having a once-in-a-lifetime event, right, when he hit that first hole-in-one, to having a once-in-human-history kind of day when he hit three in the same round. And in the passage in Luke today, we're going to see another example of someone having a once in a lifetime event, become a once-in-human-history kind of event. And so, 
as we, like, as we walk through this passage, we're going to be in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 25. As we walk through this passage, what we're going to see is that God provides a remedy for the despair of his people. As we read through this, we're going to see, first we're going to see two kinds of despair that are evident in this passage and that God brings a remedy to. Right? Then we'll see two truths about the way that God responds to that despair and then two truths about how we ought to respond to God's remedy. We're going to just kind of read through this passage and point out things along the way, point out those types of despair. So we're going to start in verse 5, which says, In the time of Herod, king of Judah. And so if we just stop right there, in the first few words, we see the first type of despair in this passage. So this Herod, we were here, it's Herod the Great. So the Herod you're maybe more familiar with is the Herod at the end of Jesus' life, who Jesus stands trial before. So that Herod, that's Herod Antipas, that's this Herod's son. And so this Herod, Herod the Great, he dies in 4 B.C. And so these events that we're going to read today happen right at the end of his reign. But that means then that John and Jesus are born probably 4, 3 or 4 B.C. I always assumed that it was like right at the turn of the A.D. B.C. switch, but it's actually... 3 B.C., 4 B.C., somewhere in there that Judas and John are both born. Right? So that's Herod, Herod the Great. He is, he's a Jew. Right? He's from Judea. But he's no great friend of the Jewish people. So at this point in history, Israel is under Roman rule. And Herod has been appointed by the Romans to rule Judea. He started out his career as a governor of the region of Galilee, but then he showed himself so proficient at pacifying the Jewish people while still collecting taxes and still putting down the occasional uprising that he was eventually made king of Judah. So Herod is king of Judah, but he's in no way the king from David's family that God had promised his people. He's a, he's a puppet king installed by a foreign occupying force. Like Herod is not the ultimate authority over the Jews. Right? It's the Romans. So if anything, this Herod is a symbol of how unfulfilled God's promise of a king from David's line is. But this is nothing new for the Israelites. Right? At this point, they've become almost used to living with God's unfulfilled promise of a king from David's line. Right? After all, it's been 400 years since God showed any evidence of working among them. It had been 400 years since God sent a prophet to proclaim the word of the Lord. So Malachi is chronologically the last prophet in the Old Testament, and his book ends with these words. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. He makes the promise that one day Elijah will come, but that was 400 years ago. And in those 400 years, there have been no sign that God is going to keep that promise, or any other promise that he made to Israel. So as we, we enter the passage, we're reminded that Israel is living with this constant sense of despair, that like, maybe God has forgotten them. Maybe God has abandoned his promises. Maybe they've been so sinful that God has forsaken them once and for all. Maybe God will never send that new Elijah to turn the heart of parents to their children. Maybe, maybe. But they haven't totally given up hope. And the evidence of that as the passage continues. So continuing in verse 5, again we read, In the time of Herod, king of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Okay. So Zechariah, he's a priest, as we'll see in a little, in a little bit, like the priests are still performing the priestly acts in the temple. So the Jews, while they're maybe feeling some despair about God ever sending this Elijah, they haven't totally abandoned their faith. They're still practicing the practice God commanded them. And they are hoping that 
God will once again remember his promises and act. And of course, we know on this side of history right, that God will act. But before we get to the way that God acts in this passage, we're going to see a second kind of despair. So verses 6 and 7 say this. So both of them, both Zechariah and Elizabeth, were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. So that phrase, very old, literally means like well like advanced in years, which is the same description that we have of Abraham and Sarah, which who Paul later called like as good as dead. Right? So like so like I don't know exactly how old Elizabeth and Zechariah are, but they're old. Like they get the as good as dead phrase applied to them. Right? And so here we see this like a second example of despair in this passage. Like Zechariah and Elizabeth are both wrestling with this deep despair of not being able to have children. And wanting to have children and not being able to is cause for despair in any time and in any culture. But it would have been especially difficult for Elizabeth in that ancient Hebrew culture. Because in ancient Hebrew culture, like being unable to have children was seen as a sign of reproach. A sign that you had sinned and displeased God in some way. But Luke makes clear that that wasn't the case. He says Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous in the sight of God, and they had observed all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. So just like put yourself in Elizabeth's shoes for a second. For like for most of your life, like you've wanted nothing more than to have a baby to care for and to raise and to love and to cherish. But for some reason, like, you can't understand, like, you're unable to have a child. And if that wasn't bad enough, right, your friends and your family and your neighbors and your community members, like, they all assume that you must have done something to displease God, that you must have some secret sin in your life that causing God to not give you a child. You feel their judgment. You see their sidelong glances. You hear their snide remarks. And so you carry this, this double burden. This burden of wanting a child but being unable to have one. And the burden of knowing your community believes that you have done something to earn God's judgment. All while you, all while you, you know, right? you've been trying to faithfully serve and be obedient to God. You've obeyed His commands and laws. But it does no good to protest this to your friends and neighbors because no one's going to believe you. After all, if God wanted you to have a baby, you would have one. He must be punishing you for your sin. And so eventually, if you're Elizabeth, like, in your darkest moments, like, you, might, you might start to believe the whispered yourself. Like, like maybe, I, maybe I haven't been as wretched as I thought. Like, maybe I misunderstood something in God's word and God is punishing me for a sin I didn't even know I was committing. So like, as we continue this story, like Luke wants us to feel the despair that Zechariah and Elizabeth must have had over not having a child. But yet, even as we walk through trials and despair, life keeps moving on. We must find a way to live, even in the midst of that despair. And so the same thing is true for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Life keeps moving on as Zechariah has a job he needs to do. And so we pick up the passage in verse 8, which says, Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, he was serving as priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So there are 24 divisions of priests. So it was Zechariah's division's turn. There are 24 divisions. They each serve basically two weeks a year. So for a while, when I was in high school, the Army National Guard big recruiting pitch was like one weekend a month, two weeks a year. And that's pretty much, right, so that's how, like, how much time you had to commit to being in the National Guard to be an active guardman with benefits. And that's basically what like, this is, it was like to be a priest at this time, except without the one weekend a month. Right? It's just two weeks a year that they served at the temple. And I looked, I couldn't figure out what they did in the rest of their time, like, if they had duties at their local synagogue, or if they had other jobs, or what, like, I don't know. But two weeks a year, they served the temple in Jerusalem. And twice a day, 
once in the morning, once in the afternoon, one of the priests from that division, who was not from that division, would be chosen by lot to go into the temple and burn incense. So if you do the math, there are two offerings a day. Each division is on duty 14 days a year. So that means 28 priests from each division get to offer the get to offer the incense in a given year. Now there's about 750 priests in a division. So 28 a year, 750 in a division, which means that your chances of being selected in a given year, or even in a lifetime, are not that good. That once you're selected, you're ineligible ineligible to be selected again. So here Zechariah gets chosen to go and offer the incense. So literally was a once in a lifetime opportunity. But as we read on, like this special once in a lifetime opportunity becomes infinitely more special. Start picking on verse 10, we read, And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you are to call him John. So, like all my life, when I read that passage, I assumed that when the angel said, Your prayer has been answered, that he must have been talking about like, Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer for a child. Right? Which they must have prayed time and time again over the years. But as I was studying this passage this week, as you can realize, I don't think that's the prayer that Zechariah was praying, that the angel was talking about. There's a couple of reasons I, I think that. Right? So the fact that here in the passage, like prayer is singular, and the tense of has been heard, in Greek, so your, your prayer, one prayer, has been heard, that tense seems to indicate it's a one-time deal. So it was probably the prayer that Zechariah was offering as he burned the incense that the angel said is answered. It's unlikely that Zechariah, as he offered the incense, would have been praying for a child for a couple of reasons. One, as the text makes clear, as we said, Zechariah and Elizabeth are very old. It seems likely they would have given up any hope of having a child a long time ago. I don't care like how much faith you have. At some point, prayer for a child are eventually going to fade away and be replaced by an acceptance that for some reason God chose not to give you children. They might not have all the scientific knowledge that we have, but they knew when... But they knew enough to know when a woman was past her childbearing years. And Elizabeth was well past her childbearing years. And then as priest, right, as chosen to offer the incense in the temple, Zechariah was representing all of God's people in that moment. And so it had been far more fitting for him to prayer, pray a prayer on behalf of all of God's people, right, other than a prayer just for himself and his wife. And then finally, as we read in a minute, when the angel tells John he's going to have a son, John is like, incredulous, and he's going to ask for a sign of proof. Right? And if I, as an old man, with an old wife, had enough faith to ask God for a child, and then God sends an angel to tell me that the prayer I just prayed was going to come true, it doesn't seem like a natural response to say, uh, can I get a sign? Like, like the angel showing up to you and telling you that your prayer, your prayer is coming true, isn't enough of a sign? Right, so I don't think Gabriel is talking about Zechariah's prayer for a child when he says that Zechariah's prayer has been answered. Then the obvious question is, if that's not the prayer, then what is the prayer? What was Zechariah praying for and how was it answered? And as the passage progresses, we get the answer to that question. Continuing in verse 14, we read, He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. 
and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So the angel promises that this son of Zechariah will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children. In other words, the words should sound familiar. They come right out of the end of Malachi, which we read earlier. So the angel is telling Zechariah that God hasn't given up on his people. That God is still going to keep the promises he made 400 years ago. That God is still going to save his people. And I think that's what Zechariah was praying for. Right? That he was praying that God would save his people. And so here we see the first truth about God's remedy for the despair of his people. And that is the fact that God's remedy for their despair is corporate. Right? God has a plan that overcomes the despair of his people collectively, his people as a whole. So I think, like I said, that's what Zechariah was praying, and he offered incense. He was praying that God would save his people as a whole. And then Gabriel shows up, and he tells Zechariah that God has heard his prayer and is indeed going to save his people. But the good, news doesn't, the good news doesn't end there for Zechariah. Because not only is God going to save his people, he's going to begin the work of saving his people through a son that he's going to give to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah and Elizabeth are going to have a son who will make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so often in the Bible, God uses children born through miraculous circumstances to achieve significant things. I think of Isaac, I think of Samuel, both of whom are born to barren mothers. And John is no exception. He's going to be an kind of an instrumental role in getting God's people ready for the Messiah, for Jesus. So even though there's other examples in the Old Testament, Zechariah still can't quite believe what Gabriel is telling him. And in verse 18 we read, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. Zechariah is basically saying, right, that's great, God. That's great that you're going to save us. Like, are you sure you're the right guy? Like, are you sure it's me you want to talk to? And Gabriel responds in verse 19. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my word, which will come true at their appointed time. So, we need to be a little bit careful with verses like this. So if we're not careful, it's easy to read that and have the lesson be, like, you better make sure you have enough faith, like, otherwise God's going to get you. You better work hard to be obedient, otherwise you're going to get a dose of God's wrath. But that's not what this is. Gabriel striking Zechariah mute, it's actually a gracious gift of loving discipline towards Zechariah. God is giving Zechariah the sign he asked for, but he does it in a way that will cause Zechariah to grow in his faith in God. This, this is surgery that hurt in the moment, but eventually helps you feel better. Right? Not torture, where the only goal is pain. The scariest place to be with God is the place where God stops caring and stops disciplining you for your sin. Right? Romans one twenty one says, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Like When God stops caring about your sin, when he stops disciplining you, when he gives you over to a depraved mind, that's the sign of God's wrath in your life. But when God lovingly disciplines you for your sin, the way he does for Zechariah here, that's his loving mercy towards you. That is him helping you grow in your faith and obedience towards him. Not because he's on some power trip and demands faith and obedience for their own sake, 
but because as your creator, he knows the best way for you to live and he wants the best for you. So God causes Zechariah to be mute at both a sign to Zechariah that a promise will come true and as loving discipline for Zechariah. And the passage continues. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen, a, he had, they realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. So when you came out of the temple with the priest, like you're supposed to offer a blessing for the people. And Zechariah couldn't do that, obviously, so they're a little confused. But they realize eventually he can't talk. And then, verse 23, when his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. These these words of Elizabeth. The Lord has done this for me. That he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. They highlight the second truth about God's remedy for despair that we see in this passage. And that remedy is that God's, that, and that truth is that God's remedy is personal. Not only was God going to take away the despair of his people as a whole by providing a means of salvation? He's going to take away the despair of Zechariah and Elizabeth by giving them a child. God cared about his people both collectively and personally. But it's so easy to overemphasize one of these at the expense of the other. Either we really focus on the fact that God does care for us personally, but then we think, he really only cared about my, my relationship with him and, he's like, and him making sure that I'm happy and content. He doesn't really care if I'm involved in a church. He doesn't really care if I love my fellow Christians well. He doesn't really care about what the church is doing to advance the kingdom of God. He just wants me, personally, to have faith in Jesus. Or on the other hand, we believe that God cared about his people collectively, but not as much about us personally. That God's mission is to see a kingdom advance. And I'm just a pawn on the chessboard. I'm just one soldier in a massive army. And if I need to be sacrificed for the greater good, then God, the general, isn't really going to care all that much. But this passage makes it clear that God cares both about both. He cared for people collectively as a whole, and he cared about each individually. He cares about our personal and private despair and will provide a remedy. As we close, I want to highlight two things we need, we need as we wait for and respond to God's remedy. And next is that God's remedy demands faith and patience. God's remedy demands faith. Throughout the Bible, we see God show up when it seems like all hope is lost. God, people corporately and individually go through long stretches of despair. And it's hard to blame them for giving up hope and losing faith. And we see that exemplified in Zechariah in this passage. He has so given up hope of ever having a child that he can't quite believe it even though God sends an angel to deliver the news. But the invitation of this passage is to keep faith that God will keep his promises. But we also want to be patient for God to keep those promises. Zechariah and Elizabeth waited until they were very old for God to give them a child. The people of Israel waited 400 years for God to speak again after the end of Malachi. God is not prone to working on our time scale. But if you find yourself in a place of despair, a place of worry, a place of trouble, be patient. Keep trusting that God will keep his promises no matter how bleak they might seem. 
Again, the fact of the matter is, like, the patience that's required like, may extend even beyond this lifetime. Like, 400 years between the end of Malachi and Gabriel showing up to Zechariah means that generation after generation after generation of Jew were born under foreign rule, lived their whole life and died with no sign that God would be active again. But that didn't mean that God didn't have a plan. And here's the good news. The greatest cause of despair we have is death and eternity separated from God in hell. God's already provided the remedy for that despair in Jesus. The one that John came to prepare the way for. Jesus, through his perfect life, through his death on the cross and his resurrection, promises that if we place our trust in him, our sins will be forgiven. And even though we may die, we will one day be raised again from the dead and we'll spend eternity in the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no sickness, there will be no pain, there will be no tears, there will be no reason for despair. In the new heavens and the new earth, God will show God will show that like, he's overcome every sort of despair. We will joyfully worship him for all eternity. Will we wait for that day in the new heavens and the new earth? We must have faith and we must be patient. But thankfully, like, while we wait, God has given us tangible reminder of his great remedy for despair. In just a minute, we're going to partake in communion, which is one of those reminders. So in a minute, we're going we're gonna to eat bread, we're going to drink juice to remind us of the fact that God was so committed to providing a remedy for our sin and our despair that he sent his own son, Jesus. And that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was spilled on the cross so we could spend eternity with God free of despair. But here's what I want to do before we, before we partake together. I want to give us just a few minutes of quiet reflection. In these moments, I just encourage you to examine your heart. And just look, like, what is causing me anxiety? What is causing me fear? What is causing me pain? What is causing me to dismay? There's no shortage of candidates of things that are causing those things in our heart in the world today. So, Take a moment and reflect, like, what is causing me to despair? But then as you see those things in your heart, that the cause of the emotions, I would encourage you, as you hold the bread and the cup, and you reflect on what they represent and what Jesus did, just remind yourself that Jesus came to overcome all those things. That Jesus is king, that God has a glorious plan for the universe, and that one day Jesus will come back and make all things right. Let's just enter a few moments of silence together.
Father, we thank you, we praise you that what should have been the greatest source of despair ever, that your son died on a cross, that you took that moment of great despair, of great weeping and distress, and you turned it into our joy by raising your son from the dead. That's evidence that you provided a way for us to be made right with you and to be forgiven of our sins. So the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Partake. After supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Father, thank you for Jesus and this reminder of what you've done for us, of how much you love us, how much you care for us. Pray that you would be honored as we go forth from here, that we would go in the knowledge that you are the great king of the universe. You have a good plan for each of us. We would go in that knowledge, seeking to glorify you through how we live our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we prepare to leave, I invite you to come back here at 10.30. We'll gather and we'll have a discussion about the sermon, if you want to join us for that, you're more than welcome to. Also at 3.30 this afternoon, if you are if you want to join online, we'll have an a online version of that, um, of cross-training. So there should be an email in your inbox with a link to that event if you want to join us in the online version of that. So I'm looking forward to just, yeah, discussing this passage with you, whether here at 10.30 or online at 3.30. And as we go... Pray that you would go confident that God has remedied all your causes for despair. Go in peace.